Hey, yeah, great to have you with us this morning. Steve's my name. I'm the ministry team leader here. And if you're visiting with us today, a special welcome. We're, we're wrapped you here. Uh, or if you're joining us for the first time online, great to have you with us as well. We're starting a new series today uh, in the context of our focus for 2024 of going deeper. Uh, and the series is in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. As you came in, you may have been offered one of these booklets Uh, It's just a notes booklet. It gives you the information, the passages that will be preached over the next uh, nine or ten weeks on this series in Matthew's Gospel. And so rather than, uh, you know, writing them on a scrap piece of paper or uh, anywhere else, you can uh, have one of these. We'll have them available next week as well. Uh, And you just jot your notes down there and reflect during the week, either in your life group that goes through uh, maybe this series as we do this on Sunday, uh, or just in your own time together. So feel free to get one of those on your way in next week or on your way out today if there's some left. So the concept of going deeper with Jesus, that's our focus for 2024. But how does that happen? How do we do that? We're starting, as I said, to unpack this uh, uh, series, uh, this focus with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes is what we will look at. The Sermon on the Mount actually runs across chapter 5 to chapter 7, but uh, we'll just focus on these first uh, 12 or 13 verses. And they're going to help us answer the question, how does a person go deeper with Jesus? How does that happen? And what Jesus will tell us through this passage is in stark contrast that the ambition of the world uh, has for you. One of Australia's um, reality TV programs that's airing at the moment uh, is called Australian Idol. It's a musical musical talent show um, where people audition to a panel of three celebrities. Two of them are musical professionals uh, and one is a radio host and a TV uh, personality of some acclaim. The focus is to seek to unearth Winning musical talent, talent-worthy people who will be uh, worthy of being called the Australian Idol. Very exciting. Uh, the TV show had a, has a format where you audition to these, this panel of people, hundreds and hundreds of people, and then they get down to a small number and then they choose the winner from that. Last week they aired a show um, as a part of the series called Transformation Week. Transformation Week, which is handy because we're talking about transformation as a church. And so I tuned in, thought this will be helpful to what we're going to discuss (laughs) as a church on Sunday. And what Paul would say about transformation in 2 Corinthians, this will immediately align, I'm sure. So the transformation that takes place for those on the show uh, is taking them from unknown supermarket trolley worker, factory worker, single mum, to global superstar. There's an external transformation that takes place and Transformation Week will develop them in their look, right, their hair, their makeup, their clothes, the style that they are going to present themselves as the potential Australian idol. And when I watch this um, uh, notebook ready, no, I didn't have a notebook. I was just taking notes on my phone. 
But there wasn't a lot of substance in it. It was all external transformation. All external appearance-based change that they were looking to deliver. Jesus' input in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount is a, in radical contrast to the purpose, content and pathway of shows like Australian Idol, which, if you didn't know, is the second highest rating TV show in Australia currently. None of that is going to surprise you, I'm sure, but how do you and I live in this environment seeking to pursue a deeper transformation in the person of Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about today. Let's pray together. Father, we just ask that as uh, we open your word now, uh, we reflect on a few verses that uh, for many people in the room will be quite familiar. Having said that, we want to ask that you would reach in and do something different in our hearts. If there is transformation that you want to make in us today, illuminate something that you want to change in us, then we would invite you to do that through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've got a Bible, Matthew 5 is where we will be today, but the first few chapters of Matthew's gospel uh, lead up to the story in Matthew 5. Before the arrival of Jesus, the people um, were living in a place or in a time called the intertestamental period, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The period between Malachi, around 400, 420 BC, to the coming of John the Baptist. It's about 400 years where there is no prophet raised to speak on behalf of God, to share the story. Rosemary shared with us this morning actually uh, two verses uh, from the book of Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet who told the story hundreds of years prior to this of how God wanted his people to interact. He was a prophet. He was the mouthpiece of God. But in the intertestamental period, there is no prophet. There's silence. God is quiet. The religious systems and the religious people are left to their own devices to be faithful and to wait for the coming Messiah. The Pharisees and the Sadducees make up the bulk, not all, but the bulk of the religious management of the time, for want of a better word. Both groups know their Old Testament and are waiting for the Messiah the coming king, but they actually have different agendas, these two groups of people. When Jesus arrives, the Jewish people, God's people, had been under the authority of Roman rule for hundreds of years. Uh, there's a tremendous challenge for these people in this season as they wait for the Messiah and they have to live under the wayward approach of the religious leaders. Here's the best way I could work out to explain it to you. The Jewish leaders can, 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 uh, were compiled of these two uh, kind of Jewish sects, if, if you like, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were aristocrats and wealthy priests. They wanted good relationship with Rome, who were governing the land at the time. The Sadducees were few in number. We don't know exactly, maybe 20 or 30, 
but they were very powerful and they had a working relationship with the Romans. Their view of Scripture was that they held very tightly to the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses, but they had minimal regard, almost no regard for the the prophets. So what uh, Rosemary read out before from Isaiah did not figure highly in the way they, they taught or the way that they influenced the culture around them. Jesus presented problems for these priests. First, Moses had authority over even the high priest and his word. Therefore, if a prophet appeared like Moses, this would be problematic uh, for the Sadducees because he would challenge their authority and status. They certainly didn't want this. And we saw this take place in Mark chapter 11 when Jesus comes in and drives out the money changers in the temple uh, foreground. Jesus was challenging the authority of these priests and the way they managed the temple and the religious system. Equally, Equally, there was a battle with the Pharisees as well. The Pharisees wanted a warrior king to lead them out from underneath the Roman rule, to take over by force, but to still be submissive to them as the Pharisees when it came to spiritual matters. The Pharisees had put together their own set of rules. They'd added to what Moses had shared and how to interpret the rule, how it should be applied. They had rules on everything, including you know, things like what to do on the Sabbath. Their, their rules amassed over, one, over 600 rules in, end, in the end. Moses laid out 10 and they'd expanded that to over 600. Throughout Uh, This season, Jesus had a lot of trouble with the Pharisees as well, particularly around the application of the law because of all of their rules that were on top of Moses' law. They taught that uh, the Messiah would come, but uh, he would liberate Rome, but he was going to be probably a different person than the next godly prophet. And the reason they taught that is so that they could hold the keys still to the process of spiritual interpretation of the Mosaic law. Jesus said himself, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfil it and spoke prophetically over that and that was problematic for the Pharisees. So when we get to Matthew's gospel, we understand that Matthew is the one who is writing with the most Jewishness in mind. He's the one who quotes the Old Testament more than uh, anyone else. And no one takes the same amount of time to join the dots, uh, as it were, on Jesus' identity as the Messiah. No one does that as much as Matthew does. Here's a brief overview of the first four chapters of Matthew before we get to the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 1, Jesus is identified as having the heritage of the king. He's coming as the king and he carries this heritage. It it tracks through in chapter 1 his genealogy, uh, which dates back um, through David, uh, which is the royal line, King David. And the Messiah would come from that line. Matthew details that clearly. Chapter 2, Jesus is being worshipped as the king. So he's coming from the kingly line. He's going to be the king of the Jews. He is the king of the Jews. And he's being worshipped as the king. 
the wise men come from the east and they bring gold, frankincense and myrrh, chapter 2 tells us, which uh, as we talk through at Christmas time are acts of worship to a king. Chapter 3, there is opposition to the king from Herod in the first part of this chapter uh, as uh, the, the establishment has been shaken. And then the announcement of the king is coming uh, through John the Baptist as he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And as we preached primarily, uh, sorry, historically on this, uh, we view the word kingdom primarily as a place, as a location. We think of the kingdom as a spot, come across to my kingdom. But actually it's probably better translated as kingship. And so it's more about identity than it is about location. Then chapter four uh, is the challenge to the king. There's a confrontation that takes place uh, with Jesus and the enemy, the devil, where he's offered all kinds of things and Jesus resists that process. The first four chapters of Matthew lead us to the point of understanding from a Jewish perspective that the king has arrived, the person of Jesus. Let me read to you verses uh, 1 and 2 out of uh, Matthew chapter 5. I think this will come up on the screen. Let me just read it to you from my trusty Bible. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto a mountainside, sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Yeah, this picture here uh, of uh, just really briefly uh, of teaching versus preaching in the context of uh, the first century, if you stood and were orating, you were preaching the word of God. Um, But when you sat, this was a place of uh, authority uh, identified by the teacher. So Jesus goes up on the mountainside and he says, I've got some information for you uh, that is really important for you. It's it's life-changing information. I'm going to teach it to you. And so he takes a seat, uh, teaching versus preaching. He starts his message talking about the picture of what we would understand today as happiness how to be happy, what it means to be happy. Uh, The word blessed, chapter three, uh, verse three, sorry, chapter five. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Makarios is the word uh, in the Greek uh, that translates uh, loosely into our context as happy. Blessed, blessed is the person, makarios. Makarii is the uh, plural version. the English understanding of the depth of what it means to be happy is oversimplified, of course. Very light weight. Happy is, as we know it, is grossly deficient in terms of understanding what Jesus is saying when he says, blessed is, blessed are. The Greek word I just mentioned, makarios, is where we get the English understanding of the macro and conversely the micro. The macro being the big picture. The big picture. In current language today, you would say something like, this guy has got it all or this girl has made it or happy, they are happy or blessed in the big picture. Happy in the big picture of life. As Jesus is talking here, he's not saying happy as if 
life's big picture about all the dreams that I had to become an Australian idol, going from an apprentice motor mechanic to being a global superstar singer. I'm happy when that takes place, which could have happened if it was around back in the day. (laughs) Jesus isn't talking about TV shows or any kind of earthly temporal success here. This is not his focus. He's talking here in spiritual terms, on a different plane altogether. Blessed or macro level happy is the one who receives divine, divine favour. Something that's happening on the transcendent level, beyond what you can see, feel, hear, touch. That's what Jesus is talking about. This blessing goes beyond the immediate. Now, the challenge for those that were listening is that they've lived under a system where the religious leaders are talking about spiritual things but applying them physically because they have their own agenda in line. And so this is new information. What Jesus is talking about is beyond the natural of the day-to-day. Blessed, blessedness, happiness, as you read it here, is well beyond merely being comfortable in your lifestyle or being entertained at any given moment of time or being healthy enough to do a trip or run a race or party into the night. Here's how Barclay understands it. He uses uh, a verse uh, that's been applied in 1 Timothy by the Apostle Paul, chapter 1, verse 11. According, uh, happiness, blessedness, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. So the blessing that comes to you has a source. It comes from God who is blessed. Makarios, describing, this is um, Barclay speaking. Makarios then describes that joy which has its secret within itself. That joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained. That joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes of life. So the blessing that Jesus is talking about here has a contained source, which is God. It's not dependent upon your ability to do something, achieve something, keep the law, manage yourself, offer a sacrifice or have a TV show style transformation. It's actually accessible because it's contained in God. This is the distinction that Jesus is drawing out that our our world is completely ignorant to. This blessedness that we'll talk about during this series, is contained within God. It's not reliant on your physical well-being or your wealth or your successes. But it's contained in the offered relationship that God offers you through his son, Jesus. That's what it means to be blessed. Blessed, happy, makarios. Blessed are the poor in spirit is what Jesus is saying as the start of this Sermon on the Mount. 
as he sat down. The poor in spirit, this is Barclay again, recognise that they have no spiritual assets. They know that they are spiritually bankrupt. The ancient Greek word had a, a word for the working poor. So the person who had to live from sort of hand to mouth, day to day, moment to moment, there were lots of them. The challenges of life had dealt them a difficult blow and they went out to work this day and they made enough to survive to the next day. There's a Greek word that identifies that for the working poor. And a word, they also had a word for the truly poor. The truly poor being someone who couldn't do any of that. They couldn't go out to work. They couldn't survive day to day. If they had no generosity given to them or shown to them, they would die. That would be the end. They had to beg for everything. Head down, hands out kind of existence. They had a word for the truly poor. Jesus uses the word here for the truly poor. It indicates that someone must beg for whatever they have to get. Now just pause here for a moment. Take this in for a moment. Where is happiness and fulfilment and a smile, sense of confidence, positivity, where is that found for you? Is it in what you have? Is it in what you've achieved? In what you do? Is it in your status? Is it in the hope that one day the fairy tale journey of going from supermarket trolley boy or part time factory hand to global superstar in the music industry will come to pass? That is the dream for a lot of young people. You might sit there and say, Steve, I'm 17 now, I'm past that. (laughs) I'm well past that, in fact. Those days are gone. Maybe happiness for you is found in family, the joy of family. In fact, this is a big deal in our culture now, particularly amongst older folks. The cultural breakdown of the family unit in the life uh, of our community these days. Joy and hope and happiness is found in the family. For Christians, for many Christians, this is the ultimate goal to have their kids and their grandkids all become Christians and follow Jesus and live close by and have family holidays together. And that's what they invest in and that's what they put all the pressure on and the focus into. Seeing their kids growing up, living close, comfortable in their lifetime uh, and their lifestyle, sometimes that is the most pronounced expression of what it means to be blessed in the culture we live in. But Jesus centres it like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
potokos is the Greek word for the extreme poverty. It's one that Jesus chooses very carefully. He actually defines this potokos as the entry point to knowing him personally, to entering a relationship with God. Now, this is a huge challenge in our culture. When happiness is about getting selected out of the mundane to something special and showing your talent and skills and the abilities that you have and then being transformed uh, with clothes and hair and paint, right, to now I'm happy. But Jesus says, no, no. Potokos is the entry point to true happiness, which is knowing God. If a person doesn't start there as a Christian, if you're a Christian in the room, you've come to faith in, say, the last week, which some people have, or 60, 70, 80 years ago, which probably some have as well. If you didn't start here, patokos, extreme poverty, you will come to that point at some stage. It might take a few years, it might take a decade or two, and sometimes the longer it takes, it gets framed with phrases like, is God really real? Does he really care? Has he left me? Is he punishing me, e.g. what um, Rosemary shared in the lead into communion? Is God punishing me now? Because we haven't really experienced that. This is where the modern Christian culture has misapplied or in some cases misrepresented what it means to come to Jesus. The state of sinner has been softened so as to not cause offence to the listener. But in so doing has maybe redefined what repentance and coming to Jesus really means. Coming to Jesus in that context has turned into a recruitment strategy. We've talked about this before. If I could just have Jesus on my team... We would do such great things. If he would get on board with my plan, I have such a good plan. Sometimes we have a plan in mind where we, we and God can do some great stuff. We can help some people. We can be a positive influence in our world. But I need some help from God. I need some healing on this issue, a resolution to this challenge. I need God to bless my business or save me from this catastrophe. Then I'll devote my life to him. All I have to offer, we might say, I will nobly give. Offer up to your service, God, for your benefit. As long as you help me with this one thing. It's a popular Hollywood movie prayer. And it's also likely that some of us have entered faith 
with that posture. The mindset that says, I will give everything to you, everything I have, look at what I have amassed here. I will give it to you if you save me, God. But, but this is not what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 5. If you or I desire reconnection with God, the happiness offered, entry into his way of life, the blessedness and fulfilment that he promises, that is truly self-contained within God, doesn't get shaken by external circumstances, then the pathway to that state of being is to come to him empty. Offering nothing, recognising all that you have done or achieved or amassed over time is worth naught. In fact, it's filthy rags to him. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Patokos. Here's what Jesus is offering as a result. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is offering here is spiritual. It's eternal. It's a transcendent promise. It's a promise to a spiritual problem. Couldn't be solved by human effort or personal endeavour. All of us, every single one of us comes up short on the basis of our own effort and energy. None of us qualify. The result in this verse here is a clear declaration, a pronouncement of God with the full responsibility of delivering that on God's shoulders. Not on your effort to make it work. It's a generous, gracious offer. Later on in Matthew's gospel, he presents it to us like this, with a stronger emphasis on the moment. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Our pride, yours and mine, and the culture that we live in tells us when you come to God, you need to bring something. Bring something with you. You can thank Cadbury for that. The mindset sits within us though. That says, I have to bring something. But Jesus says, Potokos, come empty handed. I have all you need, says Jesus. This is where it starts. These few verses unpack and reframe everything that we're going to look at in the next. Eight or nine weeks. Jesus is reframing everything. 
from what the Sadducees said, from what the Pharisees said about your effort, your energy, the requirement to sacrifice, to bring something suitable, to maintain the requirements of the law. Jesus is turning that all upside down. Come potokos, empty-handed. When you understand this, when you get your mind around this, this is truly good news. It's extraordinarily good news. Because if you've been walking the planet for a while, you'll know that your best is not enough. Let me give you a couple of quotes as we finish our time this morning reflecting on this picture of blessed are the poor in spirit. The first one won't be on the screen. It just uh, came about uh, post all of this coming together. It's from Oswald Chambers. Uh, Some pretty punchy words. Just tune in as I read these to you. Talking about the, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount brings about a sense of despair in the natural man. Exactly what Jesus intended it to do. The knowledge of our own poverty is what brings us to the proper place where Jesus can accomplish his work. When you come with something in your hand saying, Jesus, I need you and I bring this to you by way of a blessing to you. He has to wait for that hope that you've placed in that thing, whatever it is, your own skills, abilities, history, whatever. He has to wait for that hope to evaporate. Until you finally come, Potokos. That's when he gets to do his work, is what Oswald Chambers is saying. There are some of us here this morning who have lived with a mindset that says, I want to come to Jesus and I've got some stuff to offer him. I'm sure he will be impressed. And you maybe have done that for a long time, decades. And the culture we live in means that we are, some of us are pretty well resourced. And we think, if I just keep bringing the good gear, he's going to love me for that. The, the message this morning is abundantly clear from Jesus. Potokos, come empty-handed. You place a barrier when you bring something that you want to offer. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it in 1 Corinthians. This is in the Amplified Version. For the message of the cross is foolishness, it's absurd, illogical, ridiculous. Who's coming up with this? To those who are perishing and spiritually dead 
because they reject it. But to those of us who are being saved, not by your effort, energy, input, but by God's grace, it is the manifestation of the power of God. It is good news. You know which one of those two you are. You do. My, I would implore you, particularly if you've been around for a while, intentionally pursue the second one. Not the one that says, let me explain to you, Steve, the good things that I can bring to Jesus. Give me a moment. Do you have five minutes? Potokos. And when you get to that place, the grace of God is good news. It's extraordinarily good news. This is the starting point that Jesus offers up at his first sermon. (laughs) Way to empty the room, right? But he's talking the real deal. This is his opening line. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So this is our starting point. I want to pray for you. I want to pray that that is your mindset, that is your heart. There are so many things in the world around you that resist that. That tell you that that's not true or that you could draw, you could sit atop the fence. But Jesus is saying, come empty handed. I'm going to pray and I'm going to give you that opportunity now. I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer after me if this is not your posture. Because I want you to start this series. I want you to go forward from this day in the way Jesus wants you to see yourself and the way, more importantly, the way he wants you to see him. Let us pray together. And I would invite you to just repeat after me if this is where your heart is at, just quietly in your own heart and your own mind. Lord Jesus, I come to you today recognising that all I have to offer is not enough. All I can do in my own strength is not sufficient. I acknowledge you as the Lord of heaven and earth And that my sinful state has disconnected me from you and has rendered me dead. You are the only one who can bring me back to life as a gift of grace. I thank you for that gift and I receive that now. In Jesus' name we pray.